This is John Brown Today, a podcast. I'm your host, Louis A. DeCaro Jr., and I'm a John Brown biographer. I've been a student of John Brown now for over 20 years. I've written several books on John Brown. And uh, like you, if this podcast attracted your attention, you find John Brown an interesting figure in history, perhaps even more than interesting, perhaps inspiring, perhaps someone that you feel has been uh, grossly neglected, misrepresented. Those are the kind of things that I like to talk about with this podcast and why I've decided to use the podcast format. Because what I have found is that John Brown has a following. He continues to have a following. And that following are people who generally are very loyal to him or very faithful to him, who find him to be an inspiring figure and want to know more about him. I have friends in the John Brown community at large who are musicians, who are actors, who are artists, as well as scholars and writers. Uh, There's generally uh, a great interest in Brown. And what I find are Brown folks are loyal. And that's a good thing. Lincoln has perhaps more admirers, but I think John Brown's community, uh, they're they're, uh, more robust and and committed and many times much more thoughtful about issues like racial justice and so forth. So I'm happy to uh, welcome you to the table. Again, my name is Lou DeCaro Jr. And um, let me tell you a little bit about my own background getting into John Brown work. I developed an interest in, of course, racial justice. And I think if you're going to really appreciate John Brown, you will have convictions of that nature. And conversely, probably if you if you don't like John Brown and if you think he of him negatively, very likely we have to examine some of your other social concerns. Not always. Uh, you know, if you're a pacifist brother or sister, then probably you don't like Brown because he used force or violence. But typically, the average um, person in the United States, often white people, uh, think John think the worst of John Brown. Typically, are people who probably need to get a better understanding of their own nation's history and issues of racial justice. That's what brought me, but not directly. I first came to study racial justice through the work of Malcolm X, and I did my initial publications on Malcolm X's life. I I teach theology. I'm a historian with a interest in the intersection of religion and uh, struggle for justice. And it was Malcolm who really talked in a number of places uh, about John Brown and and suggested that the way that white society in the mid-20th century had portrayed John Brown was to make him look like a nut and uh, that John Brown deserved a different consideration. When Malcolm X formed his Organization of Afro-American Unity in 1964, which was his attempt to form an umbrella group that would bring uh, black people together from different religions and different organizations to come together, he formed that organization. And at one point he was asked if any white person could join the organization, and of course the answer was no. Generally, whites were not permitted He wanted whites to organize and work against racism in their own communities. But he did say, maybe John Brown, maybe John Brown could join. And that was because even though Malcolm X did not necessarily praise John Brown, and nor would we want him to, it certainly wasn't Malcolm's style, 
But the point was that he had a quiet respect for Brown because Brown had taken everything to the mat. He had picked up a weapon. He had he had struggled against slavery. He had fought. He had worked, not only worked the Underground Railroad, but he had taken up arms. And he ultimately gave his life in fighting slavery. It's very hard to view that kind of a man as anything less than an ally. In fact, I reflect a lot upon what does it mean to be an ally? What does it mean to be a white person who's an ally of the black struggle? To be uh, a man or a woman who believes in justice? Those are important issues. And I think John Brown is a very important figure for that reason. And I often tell people when I'm speaking as an author, I tell them, I'm really not interested in giving black people a white hero like John Brown. If they admire John Brown, fine. What I really would like to see are white kids who learn about John Brown and understand his continuing relevance to a nation that is struggling still with racism. That there are people in our past who were devoted to justice, who fought and even were willing to give their lives. And John Brown is a significant figure. So I'm very much proud to... Uh, work in John Brown's story. As I said, I've been working on his life for 20 years. I'm very interested in his life and letters. I'm pretty much interested in anything John Brown did or said. If you showed me his toothbrush, I'd be interested in seeing it. That's the kind of a student I am. And you know what? Some of you are the same way. You want to know more about John Brown. And I'd be happy in the process of this podcast to talk about biographies, to talk about books that are, are worth reading, that will, will bring you around, hopefully in mine included, but not only my books. Uh, but also talk about things that uh, are probably negative and not to bash anybody, but to, to raise questions about how John Brown has been portrayed in film, on television. Right now, the good Lord Bird is being shown on Showtime. And, you know, that's a half glass kind of situation, which we'll talk about today. But I'm interested in, in just talking about John Brown. And I call this program John Brown Today because... I'm interested in history, but I'm also interested in the continuing relevance of John Brown to society. I'm interested in knowing about artists and musicians and actors and people. There's a range of people doing all sorts of interesting things, uh, white and black and across lines of ethnicity. And John Brown, of course, is an international figure. He is known and admired around the world. He's known and admired in Africa. He's known and admired in the Caribbean and Latin America. He's known and admired because of his stature as a freedom fighter. A very important figure who inspired other freedom fighters in his own contemporary world as well as down through history. Now, let me ask this rhetorically. Why were you miseducated about John Brown? That's a good place to start. My whole premise and belief is that a lot of miseducation has taken place uh, concerning John Brown. I, I would say that he's probably one of the most misunderstood figures in the history of the United States, the most misrepresented figures in the history of the United States. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Uh, because of course, a certain measure of interpretation is always going to be involved. I know some good folks who are very interested in this period of history, are very interested in black history, who may not have the same take on Brown that I do. But I think, generally speaking, what we need to understand is that there's a history behind how Brown has been interpreted. 
and I, I, I'll break it down, just generally speaking, to think about the fact that at the time John Brown carried out the Harpers Ferry Raid, he was famous in the North. He was controversial as a figure, but he was well-liked by the most radical people in the North who saw him as a freedom fighter because he had fought in Kansas. Uh, we'll talk sometime about the Kansas killings and so forth because that's often the first thing you hear, and that's often the worst representation. Brown had a reputation. He was known as Osawatomie Brown because of Kansas. And when he raided Harper's Ferry, that made the news. And when it became known that it was old John Brown who had gone into Virginia, he became uh, the celebrity of the day. And that's, that's really a phrase that comes right out of the New York Tribune, the Daily Tribune, that he had become the celebrity of the day. Uh, and everything that he could possibly write about, if it, was, if it was reported to the newspapers, it was big news. As a matter of fact... I believe it's not overstating it that the modern notion of the newspaper interview was really born out of the John Brown story, whether it was interviews with John Brown or interviews with people who knew John Brown. The idea of the newspaper interview uh, was really not a familiar device until the time of John Brown's raid. Another thing that was really important is that there were a lot of illustrated newspapers. You know, this is before photography. Uh, so they used woodcut engravings, and a great deal of uh, of effort was put into capturing scenes from Harper's Ferry and sketches of John Brown in several major uh, newspapers, uh, illustrated newspapers. So he was big news in those days. People were really interested. Now, people in the South were angry. They were shaken up. They were disturbed by him. He had really affected the whole South because of his impact uh, at Harper's Ferry. But he had inspired, he put a fire under the Northerners. And uh, when Virginia determined to hang him in 1859, this really began to create the image of a man who was a hero. And of course, his letters, if he wrote to somebody in Ohio, or he wrote to somebody in New York, often those letters were, were shared with the newspaper. And so they became part of the daily reading. What did John Brown write today in that five weeks that he was in prison waiting to be hanged. And and so he built a following, and his letters were not political epistles. He wasn't writing, uh, for the most part, he wasn't writing things that resonate in any sense as a political manifesto. Uh, even his letters were probably not, typically not as profound overall as, let's say, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. There are some significant things in his prison letters. I've actually edited a book called John Brown Speaks uh, that, that has every extant letter uh, of John Brown and as many interviews as I could find in newspapers that were authentic and correct. Uh, so, but amazingly, a lot of his letters were very, uh, very daily life kind of things. He wrote to his family about business affairs. He did talk about some of the losses and deaths at Harper's Ferry among his men. He addresses a number of interesting things. But for the most part, he's writing to his wife and he's urging them. One of the major themes of John Brown's letters is urging his children to become converted to Christianity because he had brought them up Christian. But most of it, most of his kids, especially I'm talking about the adult kids, most of the kids did not embrace Christianity. So he was always, um, always kind of troubled by that because he was a very devout Christian man. Uh, and so that was something that comes out in the letters. He also writes to his wife about all sorts of details. Be that as it may, 
uh, his letters made an impact because of the sincerity, the, the piety, the humility, but also the passion for justice, just the simple stated facts of being committed. One, one of his letters, he says to his family not to forget the great family of man, uh, his devotion to uh, human rights, his uh, disdaining of religion that embraced slavery and religious leaders who embraced slavery. All this comes through. John Brown became a powerful force. He was hanged on December 2nd, 1859. His, his surviving men were hanged uh, either in uh, later in that month or a couple of them were hanged in early 1860. Uh, so they were gone. Uh, but John Brown's legend, John Brown's name became an inspiration. So by the middle of the Civil War, of course, you may be aware that uh, soldiers began to play around with a little song about a soldier named John Brown, and they, but it became charged with the power uh, of John Brown, the zeitgeist, if you will, uh, became charged with this sense of John Brown looming over the nation during the Civil War. There's one record that I found in a newspaper that in some areas of occupied Virginia during the war, enslaved people were working in the fields. Now, they weren't liberated yet, but they were enslaved working in the fields, and the Union Army was there. But, you know, the Union Army could not set people free because of legal constitutional claims on the part of the slaveholders, which is why Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 62. But during the war, the uh, the Union soldiers heard enslaved people in the field singing John Brown's body. Soldiers sang John Brown's body. And in the case of the enslaved people, uh, they, the, the master was asked, you know, what he could do about this. And he said, I can't do anything about it. I can't stop them from singing it. John Brown became such an important figure for the war effort. And when the war was won, uh, John Brown remained a cultural, social hero well into the later 1880s. But by the time you get into, you know, after the 1880s, when you're getting into um, the latter part of the 19th century, a number of things happened. One of the things that happened, one of the first things that happened, and this happened probably in the 1870s, is some of, some of the people who knew John Brown, particularly out in Kansas, uh, grew jealous of his legacy, particularly because he was always associated with Kansas as a liberating figure. And in fact, John Brown wasn't in Kansas very long. He didn't even go there to settle. He didn't go there to found, um, you know, uh, Kansas as a free state. He went there to defend his sons from from pro-slavery terrorists. So later on, some of the foremost leaders, there was a man named Charles Robinson, and there were some, uh, there were a couple of others who who resented John Brown becoming such a a predominant figure posthumously that they began to slander him. And there was a publisher named George Washington Brown who also uh, used a newspaper, and he was a bit of a trickster. He published two versions of his paper, uh, one to appease the radical abolitionists in the East and others to kind of appease the pro-slavery element because he was in Kansas and he didn't want to get in too much trouble. Uh, but he hated John Brown, and he did a lot of, and made a lot of efforts during John Brown's last days as well as even long after he lived to try to slander him. 
And so, but these were kind of personal animosities. Brown himself, uh, this was not a relative, by the way. George Washington Brown, or G.W. Brown, was from Pennsylvania. And uh, John Brown didn't think highly of him. And most of, you know, the abolitionists knew that he was a a two-faced man, that he was a bit of a mercenary and a sellout. Then as you get into later into into the 19th century, you have a new generation coming up. The same generation... I dare say, that really allowed for black people to be betrayed. You know, Reconstruction lasted from the end of the Civil War till about 1875, and we won't get into the details, but for reasons that were um, advantageous to the Republican Party uh, in the 1870s, uh, the Union troops were pulled out of the South. That's when you've started seeing a lot of terrorism exerted on black people, the Klans, you know, all these different uh, white racist, armed white racist groups began to kill black people, destroy their economic building blocks. A lot of wicked stuff was done, uh, which is, you know, that that leads into Jim Crow, that leads into hard segregation, which leads eventually into the 20th century, into the civil rights movement. Well, not only did black people take a beating, which was the worst aspect of it, all the gains that, that black people made in the 1860s and 1870s came to naught because of all this terrorism. So these Southern whites really uh, reasserted their power, their authority, their um, you know their and their oppression of the black community, drove them into peonage or drove them out of the South. So there were blacks who were fleeing into Kansas and fleeing out to Oklahoma or trying to come north. But this was the devastation. Uh, the devastating impact of white betrayal. Black people were betrayed into the hands of their former masters. And this, of course, explains why we needed a civil rights movement 100 years later. Because if it had just been emancipation and reconstruction, uh, black people would never have had the problems that they continued to have. Now, having set that as the social-political backdrop, you can imagine then what happens to John Brown. You have some people attacking him. You have some people who are jealous of him. You have some people who began to shift with the change of the mood. The anti-slavery generation passed away. The abolitionists of the 1830s and 40s and 50s, even 1860s, they began to die in the 1870s and 80s. And by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, you find that there is a sense of indifference. Even some people... Uh, like Horace Greeley, who was the editor and founder of the New York Daily Tribune, who was an anti-slavery man before the war. You'll find that later on in the 19th century, he, uh, he turned away, and a lot of white America turned away from the plight of black people at a time when they really needed to double down on liberation and double down on supporting the black community. And it's in that context that John Brown becomes increasingly an object of contempt to white America, not to black America, but to white America. Now, black Americans continue to sustain a great respect and regard for John Brown. Uh, of course, Frederick Douglass did so. Frederick Douglass was, was quite alive and active and speaking into the 1880s, and he died in the 1890s. But he left a legacy. But so did so did other 19th century uh, black writers and artists. And that continued. Perhaps one of the most beautiful lyrical biographies of John Brown was written by W.E.B. Du Bois in 1909. 
And even though Du Bois did not have a lot of good research support, so therefore he used some research and some material, so some of the details of his biography are not reliable. But the, shall we say, the form and shape and essence of John Brown as Du Bois presents him is not only a beautifully written book, but really captures John Brown. And so that's 1909. And so the black community uh, continues to have a great respect and appreciation for Brown, while the white community is growing increasingly uh, inclined to trash him, to call him insane, to say that he was a criminal, to blame him for the beginning of the Civil War. All this was taking place moving into the 20th century. You had people like Robert Penn Warren, a Southern writer who glorified the South, who wrote a book about John Brown in the 1920s and, you know, portrayed Brown as a murderer and so on and so forth. And uh, you get the Civil War historians that come, you know, uh, in the 1940s and 50s, like Alan Nevins and some of these other writers, and they portray John Brown as crazy, as insane, and they're doing this without any great substance. They're doing this really, I think, in large part, because John Brown is such an epic figure that he needs to be moved out of the way if you're going to elevate Abraham Lincoln as the great white hero. Now, I don't want John Brown to be the great white hero, but I think John Brown deserves to be recognized as more than the Don Quixote of the anti-slavery period who kind of stumbles into doing something and then he hangs for it and becomes a hero kind of accidentally. John Brown was a real liberating archetype in this country. But you can't have John Brown as a liberating archetype if you're trying to present Abraham Lincoln as the Jesus Christ who died for black people, which is what the abolitionists were doing by the, by the 1860s. I, I, I've seen it in abolitionist papers. After Lincoln was assassinated, abolitionists, white abolitionists, were beginning to portray Lincoln as this kind of martyred savior. And uh, there is, in the later part of the 19th century and into the 20th century, there's this just constant need to invoke Lincoln as the savior, as the messiah. Uh, Schools for black children are named Lincoln, and everything is Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln. Is sort of the flip side of everything being Robert E. Lee in the South. Everything is Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln in the North. Uh, John Brown is... uh, lowered. He's brought down. Popular culture, same thing happens. 1940, Santa Fe Trail, starring Raymond Massey, screenplay written by a Virginian, if I recall correctly, I don't remember his name, actors with Ronald Reagan and, 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 and Errol Flynn, I think, and but all the main characters in Santa Fe Trail are they're portraying Southern figures, people that became the great traitors of, this, of the Southern uh, Confederacy, so-called, the secession movement. They're the heroes of Santa Fe Trail. And John Brown is this uh, somewhat lunatic uh, figure who at the end is hanged, and there's a moment of sympathy for Brown. But for the most part, what Santa Fe Trail did was it gave to popular culture the image of a crazy John Brown, something that was reinforced by historians, something that is deeply embedded in the mindset of a lot of white people, invariably. Now, there may be black people who think John Brown was a nut, 
And that course has been reinforced by James McBride's novel, by the Good Lord Bird TV show, which is running right now. A lot of white people have a very deeply embedded hostile orientation toward brown. And I, I doubt that they even know where it comes from. It comes from being educated in school systems where textbooks portray John Brown as a nut, portray him as a deeply violent man, portray him as somebody who had these lunatic ideas about invading Harper's Ferry. And believe me, all these things can be addressed and clarified when you do the deep research. So there is really a kind of built-in bias against John Brown from the 20th century. And I believe that it still perseveres in the 21st century, although there have been some real positive changes. I, I think certainly the 21st century has brought a number of biographies of John Brown that have really turned the corner for the way John Brown is viewed. I'd like to think my work is a part of that, but certainly not not the most notable. I would say probably the most notable biography is David Reynolds's biography. It's a cultural biography. It's a, it's a wonderful work. And I don't agree with everything Reynolds says. You know, we never agree with everything. But certainly what the Reynolds biography did, he just really punched a hole through a lot of the bigoted nonsense. And he really brought in light. And uh, I think that that's important. Even a novelist, and I'm not really crazy about historical fiction, but I think even Russell Banks writing Cloud Splitter was something that had a cultural impact. And so the 21st century has been a bit more friendly to Brown. I think it's also maybe the shift that there are perhaps more whites today who are concerned about racial justice. And I hope it's not a passing fancy with the younger generation. That's not the first time it's happened. But when we look at the, the, the young men and young women who are part of Black Lives Matter, who are concerned about racial justice, these young people are not going to take... Uh, the notion of John Brown as a crazy man. They're not going to accept that. They are a bit more savvy and discerning with respect to uh, racial justice. And so they look at John Brown and they look at him as a man who was a freedom fighter. They look at him as a man who got it right. A man who, as they say, is on the right side of history. And so uh, I would like to say, you know, if you have a view of John Brown or you've heard that, then you know that there is a a long history behind it. There's the history behind history, the history behind the history books, to know that uh, there is a strong conservative bent in the North. The desire to elevate Lincoln meets the Southern bent, which is to tear John Brown down and to beautify the South and sentimentalize slavery, to diminish its horror, its terrorism, its exploitation. And you see a lot of this in, in the movies. Uh, you, you see, especially movies made in the 20th century, where slavery is portrayed in this so, somewhat sentimental manner with the slaves all kind of being happy around the master. And you see all this propaganda that comes from white supremacy. And along with that, on the other underside of that is making John Brown look crazy. But John Brown was not crazy. John Brown was perfectly sane. And I even take issue with uh, the late, great, Tony Horwitz. I, I knew Tony Horwitz. He wrote a, a book in 2011 called Midnight Rising, and I knew Tony. He was a very wonderful person. He was a brilliant guy. He was a brilliant writer, Civil War writer, wrote Confederates in the Attic, and then he wrote this book on the Harper's Ferry Raid. But even Tony, I just disagreed with Tony on how he thought. He tended to stress, well, John Brown wasn't crazy, but he had some kind of mental you know, issues. He was 
Yeah, maybe he was uh, depressed or maybe he was uh, bipolar. And it was just so important for Tony to want to stick that into the narrative. And frankly, after studying John Brown's life for 20 years and after reading his letters, I've been looking at his letters closely for years. I just don't see any sort of mental illness. Of course, John Brown had his ups and downs. He had his times of depression and sorrow. We all do. He was extreme when it came to fighting slavery. Uh, You know, maybe those are not everyday people, but that doesn't mean you're crazy. Usually our, our heroes are people who were extremists. John Brown hated slavery. And for that reason, he's maybe viewed by conservative white society as being crazy, but the black community knew he wasn't crazy. Uh, Frederick Douglass knew he wasn't crazy. The Secret Six who supported him and gave him money knew he wasn't crazy. His family knew he wasn't crazy. And so that idea has to be set aside. And uh, I think for the next time we talk, we'll, we'll talk about the Good Lord Bird Showtime series, which, you know, it's enjoyable. I've been able to bracket my feelings as a biographer enough to enjoy it. I've been watching it regularly. But it's not history. It's not biography. And I don't even think Ethan Hawke is portraying the man who lived, at least as far as I've been able to discern his profile. Okay, so I think at this point I'm going to stop. I want to again welcome you to John Brown Today. Come back. We'll be talking again about John Brown Today, John Brown Yesterday, and uh, John Brown pretty much on anything you want to talk about. Okay, this is Lou DeCarlo signing out.